0: ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald.
1: Good morning, it's Friday, February 6th, 2015. And this is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group. Thank you so much for joining Solutions Live. And this morning, we have for you, or actually, I guess it's afternoon my time, uh, we have a, a real treat. We, For those of you who listen to us regularly on the Executive Girlfriends Group, uh, we typically are interviewing female authors. And the topics are you know, business and growth and leadership and innovation. And uh, occasionally, we come across a book that that was written by a man, and we decide to uh, invite them into our lair. So uh, this morning, we invite Robert Scher, the author of Mighty-Sized Mid-Companies. Robert, welcome.
0: Hi. Thank you for having me. I feel
1: honored to be one of the few men. (laughs) As you should. <laughs> Robert, I'll tell you what jumped out at us uh, about your book. And uh, the subtitle of this book is How Leaders Overcome Seven Silent Growth Killers. And any of us that have worked for large companies know that these are things that uh, actually large companies uh, face as well. So tell us a little bit about yourself and why the mid-sized company is really your sweet spot.
0: Well, certainly. Well, you know, mid-size company is a sweet spot because I I founded a business and and grew it into mid-size and, you know, personally ran into these growth killers, you know, one after another. And about halfway through that, I joined a group, uh, an alliance group of CEOs that met once a, once a month, and we helped each other with our challenges, and sure enough, there was a pattern. All of us kept running into similar kinds of things. And then about eight years ago, I founded CEO to CEO my consulting firm and go inside mid sized companies. And the same pattern. And about three years ago, I said, you know what? We need a book that's really focused for mid sized companies because the same darn killers keep attacking mid sized businesses. And it is so frustrating when you finally get something going and you get it from small into mid sized and you're like, here we go, we're off to the races. And then, bam, something gets in the way. And I think it's important that. Um, that those of us that lead mid-sized businesses have, have an edge and have a way to sort of anticipate those those killers and, and work our way around them.
1: Right. So, Robert, what did you do before you founded that company?
0: Uh, I, I founded it when I was very young. So, Really? 20, 23 years uh, in one company. It's, it's odd and rare, I know, but started it when I was fairly young and you know, like all entrepreneurs, you, you do everything yourself, you work in all departments, <laughs> you pull it all together, you figure it out, and, and, and we built it over time.
1: Right, right. So what, what industry were, were you focused on?
0: It's Bentley it was called Bentley Publishing Group and we published wall decor. So when you go to Target and you wanna buy a frame picture, well somebody had to find the artist and print the, the prints of the images and pay licensing fees and so on and sell that to the picture framers that in turn sell at retail.
1: Wow. Yeah, and pretty, you never pretty. think about that being an industry of, uh, in and of itself, but that, that's really amazing. It, it so a, yeah. what, what gave you the idea to begin with?
0: Uh, that business? Yes. It it grew out of a related business. Um, We were in one industry and it had issues and challenges, very short shelf life and so on. And and honestly, we we said we needed to do a pivot. And when we looked at this, we, we actually ran into someone. It was a sales rep for another company who we met at a trade show who said, you know, you should do this. And we looked into it and it seemed like a pretty good idea. And it wasn't too big of an adjustment to make to go into that business. Uh, it was relatively low risk, and so we tried it. And it started to move a little bit, and then we retained someone who had been in that business for probably 10 years before us who was really our early guide who said, look, here's how you do it. He helped us get it get it going, and that was that was hugely important.
1: Well, you know, I know we're going to talk about uh, these uh Element of that you call growth killers, these seven silent growth killers. But you've just given us, just in the space of the first couple of minutes of this show, two really important uh, lessons, uh, particularly for the entrepreneur, but those of us who uh, hope we will be uh, mighty mid sized companies someday soon. And that is surrounding yourself with other people who are facing. The same things that you are, and I've actually reached out to a couple of networks. I live in Tampa, Florida, mm-hmm. and a few years ago, uh, looked at a network of, of female-owned uh, businesses and the CEOs. But their businesses were a little bit too far afield from my own. Uh, they were all uh, focused on servicing the local community, and you know, the business I'm in is a global business in the travel industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I, you know, as I heard you saying that you know this little uh check in my spirit said you got to go back and give it another try right and then the second thing um you know that you talked about is finding an expert who can guide you through uh, the things that you have to do. And even though that's not in the table of contents of your book, I mean, that is just invaluable, I think, to our listeners.
0: Right. And it, and it's a little different. When you're, a, when you're an entrepreneur, you need to involve yourself with many different people because you're, you're trying many different things to try to find something that will get you to midsize. And that's a different kind of expertise. It's a different mix of people. And it's important at that level. But it's just as important at midsize with an adjustment, which is at midsize, something is working. Something is producing $10, $20 million, to $100 million of revenue a year, and right. you're growing. And so there's, there's knowledge that you need to bring in about the path ahead, which is much more focused and directional once you're in midsize. So maybe you've got a franchise operation with 100 franchisees, and you realize, wow, I need to hire someone who has run a group with 300 franchisees. Who knows how to create the processes? Because while I could invent them because I'm a smart guy, why do I want to make all the mistakes that everyone else has made? Right. Let's go hire that talent and, and take a shortcut. So,
1: you know, the first chapter of your book is about letting time slip, slide away. And again, as an entrepreneur myself, I look at, uh, in in my current venture, how much time has passed from idea to even getting to the point where we're finishing the design and starting the build process. And so it surprises me a little bit that this is still a problem that mid sized companies face. So talk to us a little bit about letting time slip slide away.
0: So what, what happens when you're small, typically, there's, there's a small number of people. Every time is of the essence. Everyone communicates quickly. And the scale of projects we have to do to go from 500,000 to a million are typically smaller. And a few people can tackle them and get them done fairly quickly. But imagine now when we have 300 people and we have to install a new computer system or we have to break into Europe wow, that's a cross-functional project. It could take six months to a year at best. It's really complicated. It takes $2 million. Well, the kind of quick reaction and nimbleness that a small company brings won't work there because uh, there's too many mistakes, too much confusion, too much too much integration is required. And so we have to uh, go at it differently, and we have to plan it more carefully. We have to bring in skills like project management and skills around meetings and tracking progress, and if we do that well, we can actually be more nimble and move faster even though we burn up a little bit more time planning. Great example, uh, the Goddard Schools is a franchise that had back then about 200 uh, locations, and a new leader came in, Joe Schumacher, and when you hear Joe talk, came in, they were doing things really well, but for example, their manual was two or three years behind because no one quite ever got it finished. And he saw that they needed project management help. He brought in training for the entire organization. He saw that when they would look at the things they would do, they weren't prioritizing. They were trying to do everything. And he taught them how to do a business case to get really clear about what it is we're thinking so we could double-check it and we could compare and make good choices around prioritizing. So they did those things. The pace started to pick up. He managed it well and in 2012 for example they put in a huge computer portal and they did it on time and on budget because they'd mastered the art of tackling big projects and locking you know going lockstep with the clock
1: you know you talk about the contrasting the mid-sized company with uh, the entrepreneurial environment and what you just described in that story was the progression uh, of of really going from that operating on your gut to, you know, really having to be more thoughtful and actually having to socialize ideas. And the next chapter uh, is called strategy tinkering at the top. And, you know, I'm pretty sure uh, my picture must be in this chapter because today as an entrepreneur, you know, something goes from my mind to my fingers into my computer, and within an hour there's you know a branded website and and you know i 've already put form and shape to things and and so later on, and I think back to my last uh, venture where I raised uh, a bunch of capital and and built some game changing technology, um, I had a really hard time with the fact that that pace of strategy couldn't continue, and I did want to continue tinkering. Uh, with the strategy because nothing in my mind is ever cast in concrete. It, it has to be fluid. So so talk to us about that because, I, you know, I've seen this over and over in my clients. Talk to us about the role of strategy in a mid-sized company.
0: Certainly. So I I would disagree with you, Chicky. I think the pace of, of new ideas and innovation can stay the same, maybe even increase. The difference is that we have to start earlier and we get an idea, and we have to marshal and list all of our ideas together, have a way of evaluating them. And it's just that they go into the hopper a little bit later, but they go in in a much more disciplined fashion. You know, imagine uh, there's a company called Rodan and Fields. They do skincare through network sales. Lori Bush, uh, wonderful lady. She's built it from $4 million uh, what in, in uh, uh, seven, six or seven years ago to three hundred and fifty million now incredible pace of growth they have seventy five thousand uh, consultants, primarily women, in the field, and they 're growing at an incredible pace. This is a machine that screams forward. They have tons of innovation, but they're very careful to not just get those ideas and toss them in the middle because you, can you imagine the confusion? That 75,000 consultants would have if all of a sudden they got an email from Lori, hey, try something different. And right. if the innovation wasn't good, the wreckage it would cause to the sales numbers of all of those people and what that would do to them. So it's a higher standard of care. Instead, what Lori does is she collects ideas from her team and everywhere, and they get lined up and evaluated and then they get tested on the side. right? Let's experiment in a small scale. Let's figure out which ones are truly the great ideas and which ones didn't work out at all. And only when we've proven them enough that we know they'll add value, then we put them into the core of the business because the core of the business at that scale is a precious thing. Don't mess it up. You can't stop innovating, but you just have to work the the new ideas, and in a stepwise manner so that only the good ones jump in. And there's a great right. case study in the book where she did exactly that, and it's it's driven the growth of Rodan and Fields for the past two or three years in an amazing way.
1: So moving on to the next chapter, and, and you know, it's, it's interesting how these build on each other, and I'm sure that's not by accident. <laughs> uh, the next one is Reckless Attempts at Growth. And, you know, I know, uh, again, in my own experience, as you try different things, and, you know, some produce at best incremental um, profits and incremental sales, and you're always looking for that thing that really is going to be that leapfrog uh, product or that leapfrog service that's really going to propel you to new levels of growth. And my favorite term is, you know, making money while you sleep rather than only making money during the day.
0: Right, right.
1: So, you know,
0: the whole, the whole focus of the book is that uh, midsize is different than both small business and large business. And in large businesses, they have huge piles of cash. They have great discipline. So when they look at things to grow, there's all these steps that they've gone through. In small companies, we can afford to be a little bit reckless because we're trying to find something that will grow, that will get us into mid-size. But too often when we get to midsize, we're not used to vetting and evaluating ideas carefully. And so even though we're risking $3 million of investment, say, for example, at mid-size, we give it the amount of due diligence and effort that we did when we were a half-million-dollar company.
1: Right. And,
0: and you can blow $3 million, and that's a sad thing. Great example uh, is, is Rick Martig, who is the CFO of Blue Arc. This was a $100 million company, and they had to really do a pivot. And this was at a difficult time. They make uh, computer hardware and software and memory systems. And, and what Rick got right in his organization was three things. One is that Rick himself was a veteran forecaster, he really understood how to lay down plans that were well thought through because there's always surprises, but he's a veteran he knew how to anticipate those surprises. And he had a CEO and a leadership team that were committed to staying on forecast. So that's crucial right there. If you don't know what's going to happen and you're not willing to stay on the plan that you outlined, you can run into big trouble. Second is that he really understood the marketplace. There's a lot of market data around uh, his industry, and so he knew that when they were shifting to a lower price product, that there was great demand for it. They had done research with their customers for probably a year. So they knew that if they could build it, that there would be demand for it. And being confident about that is the second crucial thing to not being reckless when you attempt to grow. And the third thing was that they had confidence they could execute. Sometimes we dream up a new product, but it takes an extra year to get it completed. By then, the market window is closed. They had a right. strong team of people and they weren't building something that was such a leap in technology. It was a very moderate step. And so they knew they could do it on schedule and they took great risk, but uh, they managed it well. They understood the risk and they were able to reformulate a new product. It went out, it got sales, it started to drive and they ended up uh, filing an S1 to go IPO. And then Hitachi data system snapped them up at a great price. But it's, it's, those three things that are crucial to reducing the risk around recklessness when you're trying to make a big step forward in growth.
1: Right. And, you know, I think that's why a lot of founders actually don't make it to that, that mid company stage because they can't make that shift. And, and that recklessness is what got them where they were. Uh, But Recklessness is not valued uh, particularly by outside investors or if, you know, hopefully by that time you've got a proper board uh, with outside board members who can bring not only discipline but uh, just a, a, um, uh, the experience that you need really to assess risk.
0: Right. And is it the best way to build value when you've got a business worth, say, $30 million to gamble that every day? And, and I'd argue probably not. You know, you can gamble a portion of that, but as we are employing more people, when you have 300 people and you're reckless and you blow it, you're going to be laying off 300 people. That's that's a terrible thing. So we have to be a little bit more judicious about it. It's not gambling anymore. We're not just out of college, out of B school and trying to do something cool. This is serious stuff. And so it has to be approached a little bit differently, a little bit more disciplined, and if we do it well, then we're going to grow our business 10%, 20%, 30% at a crack and and have a lower risk profile while we're doing it.
1: Right. So one of the, the lower risk ways that people grow is through uh, strategic acquisitions. And uh, this happens to be a topic that I know a lot about because I, I uh, work with the investment community uh, significantly. On acquisitions within my own industry, mm-hmm. and even at the large scale level, um, you know we have all seen fumbled strategic acquisitions. Now, the types of acquisitions that are done at the mid midsize level are typically to acquire product, to acquire talent, um, you know, perhaps uh, you know there's talent amongst the the leadership team that you need, so. Help me understand how mid-sized companies deal with the potential fumbling uh, of an acquisition and what can go wrong.
0: Well, goodness, the list of what can go wrong is really long. Acquisitions. That's another book, them, right? <laughs> yeah, it's they're roughly 50-50 in terms of the ones that really create value and success. Acquisitions are a lot of fun. I've done four of them myself. And they can be a great way to grow, but they can also blow up. And when you've put... You know, two, five, ten million dollars into buying a company and it's not working well. It can just distract the focus of the entire leadership team. It can suck up more and more money because you're struggling to make it work. And so I'm a fan of acquisitions, but they have to be done carefully. And in the end, there's the, the two crucial things to look at is does this acquisition really drive my strategy? It's not just like, buying something new, or let's add a few dollars under the bottom line. Because the risk is high, we want to make sure that if geographic expansion is my strategy in buying this company, hey, it gives me a whole new state. That's right. driving strategy, as opposed to, they're making money, so I could probably make some money. Let's buy them. And and if it is strategically aligned, it, it you're willing to put more muscle into making it work because it's driving your strategy. The, the second thing is... Is the likelihood of being able to integrate and do the deal successfully? Not all deals are as easy as other deals. If the culture is totally different, and after you buy this company, you have to really get them to embrace your culture, wow, that's high risk. If they're the same size as you and they're poorly managed and they're in a different continent, really? I mean, maybe it's strategically right, but how are you going to? Get over there, and how are you going to build a new management team if they're in a in a business that's totally different than yours, and you don't know how to run their business, and you buy their business, right. and their team doesn't like you, and they run away, what are you going to do next? So, in in the book, there's a link to my website slash Mighty Tools, and one of them is a 12 point assessment. They're free, a 12 point assessment that looks at the different elements of risk around an acquisition. And what's crucial is to de-risk the deals. If if, if you look at the deal and you go through it and it's too risky, can you reduce the risk? But if you can't, the best way to improve your odds of doing an acquisition is to avoid the real stinkers. Just skip the ones that are just too risky. And the average goes up really, really quickly.
1: So we've talked about a couple of different kinds of growth the uh the organic growth that is fueled by innovation and you know just the sheer adding of people to help you execute uh, better. We've talked about acquisitions which can be uh, seen is a quick way to growth, uh, but as you have mentioned, you've really got to watch out for those landmines. So now you've grown, and and actually you're growing exponentially. So the next thing you have to be concerned about is what's in chapter five, which is operational meltdown.
0: Absolutely, and, and some businesses don't face this if they're growing at five or ten percent a year and it's nice and steady, fantastic. But but it, but in many cases. You know, we get what we want. We're out there pitching and selling and going for the national accounts, and then three of them say yes at the same time, and you're like, oh <laughs> Are we going to be able to manage this? And, you know, when you're a small company like Instagram was at the beginning and their servers melted down, they called their friends at Stanford and they told them what to do, and four hours later they were back up and running. Love right. that. But when a mid-sized company goes through this, you can't build a factory and automate or put in new computer systems in a weekend. That's six months or a year. And so um, there's a couple of issues around uh, sensing this. One is that as you start to grow, you have to shift some resources from sales into operations. And the entrepreneurs among us hate that because we want to grow, grow, grow. But ultimately, the experience we deliver our customers, especially in midsize when big companies start to trust us, if we blow it, it's going to ruin our reputation and could cap the growth permanently of our organization. So we have to be disciplined enough to say, hey, it's time to invest a little bit more in operations. We know we're going to have to move if this happens. We know that the that the planning horizon is a year for moving. So we have to understand that ahead of time. And then a year before we think we have to, we have to get started. And that's that's one of the keys to not having operational meltdown is, is A, have someone who loves operations, who loves to see the train run on time, and listen to them. And they will be watching it carefully. Second is to plan far enough ahead of time so you can react in time to not get into meltdown territory. And then third is you're going to have to shunt some money and resources towards it. Maybe that slows growth down, but it goes towards sustainability so that you don't get into this horrible position.
1: Right. One of one of my best experiences on that front. Uh, I worked for a uh, a division of American Airlines, uh, the Sabre organization, which had just been or was about to be spun off into its own. Uh, what was then a, a fairly good sized business, but you know it it, it wasn't uh, a uh, top company at that time by any stretch of the imagination. But the division that I worked for um the ceo at the time took the vp of operations and made him the vp of sales and vice versa and you know the two men were horrified um but i will tell you that that was the smartest move uh you know that i've ever seen anyone make uh in leadership because it did exactly what you said it It gave them the runway to understand what each other were doing. And when it came time to shift resources, they actually put together project teams that took people from the front lines and put them as a part of the operational teams. And it was amazing. The results was just amazing.
0: Fantastic. Great story
1: yeah so you know the the next one is kind of interesting because you know as companies grow, they do have to invest internally, and if they are growing through acquisition, they're spending money that you know hopefully money that they have. But the next one is the liquidity crash. Talk to mm-hmm. me about that
0: absolutely, so you know running out of money is the quickest way to stop looking at at growth and investment and just try to find money it's It's terribly distracting. And it, it will slow growth. And there's a couple of ways to get there. One is through fast growth. Fast growth eats up money in receivables and inventory and building that infrastructure. And, and another way is through what I call erosion. We run the business. It doesn't make very much profit, if any. And slowly, the cash balance declines. So the, the biggest key to think about is what what gives us the ability to survive a liquidity crash is our balance sheet and how strong that balance sheet is. And, and that's crucial. And we've, we've all gone through the, the big downturn. Many companies today, if they're wise, are steadily building their cash account back up, the ability to borrow money, their banking relationships. Because right. when something happens, whether it's losing your key client, I was just on the phone actually with a client, that their their one client went from 62% to 32% of their business in one year. And they made up almost all of that um, through sales to other clients, but wow, when that happens, you know how do you react? well, if you 've got a good bank balance you've got a good line of credit, you can start to make the adjustments while your balance sheet absorbs the shock almost like an airbag so that's one piece. The second piece that's crucial is how you manage the business as as things get upside down, you have to make cuts and adjust and live within your means most businesses have to make profit on a regular basis. So uh, very important to to mind that. It's easy to neglect it, but keeping that balance sheet strong will keep you alive in the tough days.
1: Great. Very, very practical advice. Now, the last one isn't quite as easy, Um, and this one uh, occurs in every size company, but uh, as you're doing this rapid growth uh, in that mid company stage, tolerating dysfunctional leaders uh, becomes really a cancer um, and because your people see it and, uh, you know, you've got to get past that. So how do you get over uh, having dysfunctional leaders as a part of your team?
0: Absolutely. And you just made a really important comment. The quality of the people that report to you is a reflection on you and your leadership ability and people that mm-hmm. hesitate to make changes have to realize that they're paying a price with their own career and with the respect that their teams get them. And and I typically have been a, a slow person to make changes. And, you know, when I'd finally uh, roll ahead, I'd have several people say, Rob, what took you so long? Boy, that person was terrible. They were slowing us down. And I'm like, I didn't realize that was the case. It was reflecting on me and, and my leadership. I think there's, there's two things that, that make this difficult. One is that we, we feel loyal to people who helped us get where we are. Right. And, and, and I get that, and that's admirable and it's important. But as leaders, we have to decide whether we should be, should be loyal to the people who helped us or loyal to the mission, loyal to what our duty is to advance the mission of the organization, whether that's a charitable organization or not. Technically, that's our job. And when we are more loyal to a person who stopped performing – who we've coached and helped but just isn't the right person to lead us forward, we're sacrificing the mission of the organization. We're sacrificing the loyalty of the remainder of the team who is pumped up and geared up and working hard to get the organization where it is. And when you look at it in that light, it gets to be a little bit easier about making a change. Now, the other thing that can really help people make a change is rather than telling someone you're not doing a good job, go away, is to be really clear about what that job is. Too often we're not as clear as we should be. So a written business plan or a performance plan that's crystal clear about what we expect, that's negotiated with the person, and then we hold them on a regular basis accountable to that. The ones that aren't performing can't perform will see that, and it makes it much easier to make a change and say, look, we've tried, we've been working on this, you're not getting here, you're not being successful, we're not being successful, it's time for a change. So it depersonalizes it to, to some extent. I want to tell a story though about a great leader, Melanie Diliberto. She leads a, a company called R. Tori that has the brand Torani, those sweet syrups you know that people put in their coffee and, and more. Right. And you know she's been the president there for over 20 years. And about three four years, their growth slowed down a little bit. They decided to look very judiciously at other avenues uh, to, to sell their products, and grocery was the one that won out. And she realized that her team didn't have the knowledge to take them forward. And she very systematically brought in people with much deeper experience. She either brought them in on top of the team or she changed out the team. She did it with respect. But she did it consistently over about a one-year period until they had a team that was ready to take them into the whole grocery channel. And double-digit growth has returned. But it's a great example of being disciplined enough, to make changes in a respectful fashion and move things forward, she realized that when you dismiss someone, you're not shooting them. It's not like her place was the only good place to work in the entire world.
1: She right. was making
0: a change to have the right team, given the challenges that she had.
1: Well, I tell you what this book uh, gives so many practical tips and uh, you know weaves in the stories uh, that you have shared with us today, and I just want to remind our listeners the name of the book is Mighty Midsize Companies, How Leaders Overcome Seven Silent Growth Killers, and the author is Robert Scherer. Robert, you, you have a consulting company. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that before we wrap up?
0: Certainly. So the company is called CEO to CEO, and we focus on helping successful leaders in mid-sized companies step up their game so they can keep pulling Uh, their their companies forward in terms of growth. We grapple, we help those leaders grapple with many of these seven silent growth killers. Our outlook is really that we are coaches and trainers. We help those teams learn new competencies and skills, typically around building leadership infrastructure, which is the system and processes that allow leadership teams to maintain control of a company as it grows and to do it in style. And so, we, we, we want to understand what the challenges are. We customize how we help those companies. And in the end, we want to walk away seeing a leadership team with new skills and new approaches that help them keep pulling their company forward.
1: So can you tell our listeners if they are interested in having you speak uh, at, at their event or if they would like to contact you or if they would just like to follow you on social media, what's the best way to reach you?
0: Certainly. So the best place to go is my website, uh, which is www.ceotoceo.biz. biz, and uh, and of course my email r. share s h e r at ceo to ceo. biz. Uh, always looking for speaking opportunities that uh, to, to audiences of mid mid-sized company leaders. Uh, to pass on this information and other information as well. But the website's a great place to start. Of course, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. All of the links are right there on the website.
1: Great, great. Well, Robert, it has been terrific uh, to hear some of your insights. Uh, I know we only scratched the surface uh, of the topics, but uh, they can also find out more information about your book and links to order it uh, on the website. And I see that you also wrote wrote a book about uh, acquisitions as a method to grow businesses. Uh, And I'm sure that even though that was written seven years ago, it's still uh, a timeless work. So uh, I may have to grab a hold of that one.
0: The feel of the deal, absolutely.
1: Thank you so, so much for your time. We always appreciate uh, those who, who devote the time to sharing their insights Uh, with our listeners and uh, for those of you who'd like to know a little bit more about the executive girlfriends group you can go to executivegirlfriendsgroup.com and we have both a public facebook page and a private facebook page for our members so thank you again for joining us and have a super weekend
0: you've been listening to the game changer ideas inspiration Innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald.